Welcome back to another episode of the Misinformation Podcast. Tonight we have a special episode as it is our first episode with a guest. So our guest today is Dr. Fred Johnson III, an Associate Professor of History at Hope College, uh, both John and myself's alma mater. He's taught history at Hope since the fall of 2000. And prior to his career in higher education, Dr. Johnson served in the United States Marine Corps as a communications electronics officer and as an infantry officer in the Marine Reserves. He subsequently worked as a production scheduler for Packard Electric Division of General Motors, an operations specialist for Contel Page Telecommunications, and as a corporate trainer for aircraft braking systems, formerly Goodyear Aerospace, in Akron, Ohio. Dr. Johnson's primary field of study is 19th century U.S. history, specifically the Civil War. His other areas of expertise are 20th century U.S., U.S. military, and Africa. He teaches U.S. history up until 1877, slavery and race in America, history of U.S. foreign policy, U.S. military history, Civil War America, and Revolutionary America. And along with completing a proposal for a course on the history of the Black Church, Dr. Johnson is revising his dissertation for publication. The work examines the existence of a definitive strategy against the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad during the Civil War, and the degree to which such a strategy included other northern east-west trunk lines. Along with that, we learned prior to the recording of our podcast that Dr. Johnson is on sabbatical right now, and part of his work during this time is on studying the historical events that have led up to the Black Lives Matter movement and much of the anti-racism activism that we see today. So with that, we're super excited to share this conversation with you. Welcome, Dr. Fred Johnson. Looking forward to the conversation. To kick us off, can you kind of give a quote-unquote brief African-American history from kind of 1865-ish to 2000, particularly in regards to economics, the criminal justice system, the educational system. Let me, let me make this real simple, okay? The Constitution, which is, which is the foundation, the, 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 the basis of, of American jurisprudence, the law, okay? We have a legal system, we have a political system, an economic system, an educational system. There are many systems within the larger ecosystem of American society. If you just take the political system and the legal system, of which the, the Constitution intersects at both, Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3, which is what they call the Three-Fifths Compromise, and then Article 1, Section 9, Paragraph 1, which is the Migration Importation Clause, and then Article 4, Section 2, Paragraph 3, which is what they call the Fugitive Slave Clause, all three of those form part of the general foundation of what becomes the 1787 Constitution, which is the basis for the legal system of the United States. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, if that is the basis, the start point from which you begin, American law begins, and it has embedded within it language guaranteeing the enslavement of a group of people, it stands to reason if logic follows through, and it did follow through, that that same system of legality, meaning the laws that made slavery, slavery not just possible, but something that was a persistent reality that was protected by the law, perpetuated by the law, protected by the law, and reinforced by the law, and encouraged by the law. And the thing about chattel slavery was this. It was both a matter of legal, systemic racism, and also economic. Because since slavery was first, last, and always an economic system, it, it means then that you have the politics of legislators who made sure that it survived, legislators who passed laws made sure that it survived, 
and then they made sure that it survived because it was essential to the economy of the United States. And I think we started to get into this a little bit with the Civil War episode with the importance of slavery to the Southern economy, as far as like the percentage of families that own slaves. I think one of the enduring myths about this has been that slavery was kind of this fringe thing uh, for, for the upper crust. And that's not the case at all. Well, what happens, John, is that at the beginning of the Civil War, the greater, the greater majority of Americans did not own slaves. But if you consider now, let me ask you guys a question. What segment of the population today has the most impact, has the most influence, has the biggest voice in American society? Is it the lower half, the upper half, the lower quarter, or the upper quarter, or the, the upper, the 1% or the lower 1%? Well, I would say it's probably, it's well, def- definitely heavy towards the upper half, upper quarter, upper 1%, and probably exponentially greater as we go. That's right. The people at the, uh, the, the people at the very top that have the money to make their voices be projected loudest, longest, and most impactful are the ones that have the biggest bullhorn. And that has been consistent. If it's consistent now, today, then it's also like that in the period before the Civil War. So if you get back to John's question, the people who had the greatest amount to gain or lose from slaves being freed or being enslaved were those slaveholders. The greater majority of white people did not own slaves leading up to the Civil War. But those who did own slaves had millions of dollars to lose in personal property value. And the one way that they could make sure that they maintain their lifestyle, their possessions, their land, and their overall wealth was to make sure that they got a bunch of poor whites to sign on with them in the enterprise of slavery. And they did that by using the white supremacist arguments of racism by making them afraid that if black people were freed, they would be equal to them, would compete with them, and would eventually best them at their own enterprises. That was something that America was never going to allow. Kind of using the same analogy, that's why like big oil has such a big say when it comes to environmental work and why big pharma has such a big say when it comes to healthcare work and healthcare and environmental policy. That's why you know those two groups have such power and such wealth that they drive a lot of the conversation and it's what drives a lot of the split kind of in America because of it. Ryan, to borrow your analogy, you know, when people from the environmental movement you know, speak up and start talking about save the planet and, you know, you know, oil is a, is a detriment, we should go for, you know, clean energy, people hear them, but they don't really listen to them because, I mean, what else would you expect them to say? They're environmentalists, right? Right. They're just a bunch of tree huggers. Exactly. But when a guy from the oil industry starts up and says, well, you know what? This may be a detriment to the planet. That's when people listen because we don't expect them to speak up because they're the ones who have been making billions of dollars over decades to basically destroy the planet. Now, all of a sudden, they're talking about we have to go to clean energy. So what they're saying is no different than what the environmentalists have been saying. It's the same message being put forth by a different mouth. So it's not that the message itself is, is, is wrong. It's the person that's delivering it, which catches their interest. Let's go back to this thing with, the, with regard to what Abraham Lincoln said. In his second inaugural, he said, if we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time he now wills to remove, that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers and a living God always ascribe to him? Now watch this. Fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Now track with me here. Yet, if God wills, that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years 
of unrequited toil shall be sunk. Abraham Lincoln on March 4th, 1865 is saying that there's been wealth piled by the bondsmen, slaves, for 250 years, unrequited toil. Do you know what it means to be in an unrequited love affair? That means that you are in love with somebody who either knows you love them and doesn't care, knows you love them and is indifferent to it, or knows, knows you love them and, and is oblivious to it. It means you're in love all by yourself. This means that for 250 years, by Abraham Lincoln's calculation on March 4th, 1865, it's already been going on for 250 years. People have been laboring on their own with no compensation, no acknowledgement, no recognition, nothing. That's what the President of the United States said in the middle of a civil war. Now, if in fact slavery was an economic system, that means that systemically it was a system and only black people were in it, which means that systemically black people were part of an economic system that doomed them to a life of slavery and it carried over into Jim Crow for another hundred years. And the reason for that was first, last, always, and fundamentally, not because they were stupid, not because they were, were not intelligent, but because they were black. You take that one example and transfer it to the laws passed to make that possible, the laws passed, which are the legal system that make it possible, the laws passed, which are a function of the political system. Politicians pass laws or pass legislation that become laws, laws that support the economic system. How could there not have been systemic racism? How can there not be systemic racism from that origin? All it did was change hands from slaveholders to Jim Crow bigots to modern Americans who updated it for the 20th century. And in 2017, a good number of them were marching through Charlottesville, Virginia, saying things like Jews shall not replace us and targeting black people as well. Dr. Johnson, one of the things that I know we talked about when I called you to kind of lay out our, our thought process here. I was listening to the 1619 Project uh, podcast a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that, I don't know if I, I knew this or I read it somewhere and forgot about it, but the idea that every slave in the antebellum South added up to a greater dollar amount than all of the country's railways and factories. I mean, that's that, that's like basically saying that it's not just that slavery is an important industry in the country. It is the industry and possibly even greater than the industry in certain states and certain counties. I mean, I think we talked about it in a, our Civil War episode about how like at the time of Nat Turner's rebellion, there were more enslaved people in Southampton County, Virginia than white people because the entire county was entirely centered on the plantation system. You know what I want you guys to do? Do a Google search on something called the Black Belt and do it with W.B. Du Bois. W.B. Du Bois um, Dr. William Edward Burkhardt Du Bois, who was born in 1868 in Bergen, on Great Barrington, Massachusetts. In his book, The Souls of Black Folk, he talked about the Black Belt, and he talks about that density of Black people who were, let's say, from Central Virginia all the way through North Carolina, down through South Carolina, into Flor the Northern Florida, and then turning east, going through Central Alabama, into Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. That's where the greatest majority of slaves were. He called that the Black Belt. So, John, what you just got through describing is what Du Bois called the Black Belt. And those people down there, the value that their human property constituted in, in, 20, in 21st century dollars, there is no way that people are simply going to walk away from that. That would be like expecting Jeff Bezos, to, you know, the owner of Amazon, to walk away from all the money that he's made. It's not going to happen. By the way, you guys, as a caveat, 
for those of you that have had me in class, you know that I get loud. I'm not mad. It's just that I get excited. I, I preface this conversation with, if you guys think that like I rant about history, you have to wait until we get Dr. Johnson going. This is... <laughs> hey, the, the, we, we love passion. I, I think one of our big questions, Dr. Johnson, was... I think we talked about this a little bit when we had the, our phone call about how the U.S. system, as far as education, focuses a lot on with African-American history. Slavery was bad. The Civil War happened. So we solved that. And then everything was basically, we don't talk about African-Americans much until maybe the Tuskegee Airmen and then Rosa Parks. And then we solved that. Everything's golden. So I think, could you maybe describe post-Civil War, post-13th Amendment, the Black Codes, the, that all fatal caveat in the 13th Amendment and the impact that had on formerly enslaved people. I would recommend you that you all also look at a series. It's entitled Slavery by Another Name. They have loaded it up on YouTube. You can see it for yourself. But it basically, it basically tracks what John's talking about with regard to what happened after the Civil War. So Reconstruction lasts from 1865 to 1877. Now, if you took a look, a look at the 13th Amendment, the 13th Amendment, I would also recommend... Uh, John, I'll send this to you too. It's from the Avalon Project. Slavery abolished, passed by Congress January 31st, 1865, ratified December 6, 1865. Now, listen closely. The 13th Amendment says, paragraph one says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Okay, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, comma, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to the jurisdiction. What that means is that you cannot be held against your will or made to do things against your will in the form of labor unless you have been punished for a crime whereof the party you shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any subject to their jurisdiction. So what happened immediately and, I'm, and listen, let me be very clear about this. Before the dust settled and the smoke clear, or while the dust was settling and the smoke clear, Robert E. Lee had not, I mean, the ink on the surrender document that Robert E. Lee, General Robert E. Lee, the senior, the Supreme Commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, signed on April 9, 1865 to Ulysses S. Grant and Wilmer McLean's living room in Appomattox, Virginia. That ink had barely begun to dry before these guys in the South were already looking for a way to get around the 13th Amendment. Because it was passed in January. The Civil War didn't end until April 9th. So it's January, February, March, April. So three months later, these guys were already figuring out a way to get around the 13th Amendment. And it was that part that said, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Now, if you're a Southerner and you don't want to see your old way of life and the old system and the old social order go away, and you see that language, Here's what you do, guys. You start passing laws that guarantee people who used to be slaves will be found guilty of a crime from which they have been duly convicted. Enter the phrase vagrancy laws. A vagrancy law is something where, let's say, for example, John's a former slave. He's standing around in, 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 in the town of, I don't know, let's say Toledo, Ohio, passed a law that says John must have a job. No one is, no one in Ohio is gonna is gonna really hire John because he's a black man. So John, if the law says John has to have a job he's, and he doesn't have a job, he gets arrested. Let's get, he gets sentenced to six months in jail. Well, they're not going to let John just lay around and you know eat three, three meals a day. 
and sleep the rest of the day. What they'll do is, hey, John, well, you, you got to go to work and earn your keep. They put him out to work on a railroad, a railroad for a private company. Now, John is being forced to work on a railroad. He's not getting paid for it. And then something magically happens. Let's say that John does some, some mysterious violation. His, his sentence gets extended from six months to a year or two years. Now, John is doomed to work for two years for a private company that's going to pay the state, not him, but pay the state a fee for the labor that it's getting by providing them labor to work on the railroad. Let me ask you all something. When people are made to work against their will and not getting paid, what's that, what's that called? Slavery. You follow me? That's what happened time and time and time again throughout the South from 1865 into, well into the 20th century, which is why I recommend to you all looking at, I'm going to send, again, I'm going to send John the YouTube video. It's the video presentation of slavery by another name because that's why they call it that. It was slavery by another name. And it lasted well into the 20th century. I'm talking about up until World War II and a little bit past that. So which laws do you have kind of a, a list of some of these laws that were utilized for this purpose specifically? They were called pig laws. Um, they're called the black codes. The pig, they were called pig laws. And pig laws are a, a rough definition, rather. Unfairly penalized poor African-Americans for crimes such as stealing a farm animal. And vagrancy statutes made the crime to be unemployed. Many misdemeanors or trivial offenses were treated as felonies. But now, we had to be very careful not to go too fast for this. Many misdemeanors or trivial offenses were treated as felonies. So what that meant then, Ryan Tim, that if, if you guys got stopped for a traffic ticket for a speeding out, for going like two miles over the speed limit, all of a sudden that would be a felony for assault. Wait a minute. I can understand getting a traffic ticket for two miles over the speed limit, but how's that a felonious assault? They made it that way with harsh sentences and fines. So what this did eventually, what this did essentially, they criminalized black life and then invented the ideology that supported the such criminalization that said that black people were inherently criminals and therefore should be watched more closely, therefore should be policed more vigorously, and therefore jailed more frequently. Is this making sense? And I'm sure that, you know, there was some profiling going on as well during that time, just like we see today, where if a white person was driving two miles over the speed limit, they were maybe let go with a warning. And if a black man was doing the same thing, then they would get that felony charge. Let me let me let me let me tell you guys a, a real quick story. I, I sit on the I sit on the, the board of uh, directors for Habitat for Humanity, Kent County, and there's another person of color, African American woman, and I, we were on there with uh, some of our white colleagues one day, and we were saying, you know, they they, they just couldn't understand what this was all about. And I just happened to mention that you know whenever I go to a gas station, I never ever 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 leave without a receipt. And she said she never ever does the same thing either because I said I do not want to ever have a situation arising where someone thinks I drove off without paying for the gas. And she said that she either made the purchase and somebody accuses her of stealing. So we always make sure we get the, we get the receipts. Now, the people who were on the Zoom call with us, they were sitting there wide-eyed and open-mouthed because one guy said, you know, I never even think about that kind of stuff. And I said, I never stop thinking about it. It just goes to show the two worlds we live in because black people, we're talking about 21st century educated people you know, she's got, what, three degrees? I got four degrees. And yet, I still make sure that I get a receipt because I know that people still assume that black people will try to steal stuff. So I make sure I have a receipt. And she said the same thing. And the, the two white guys that were on the, the Zoom call with us, they said, they felt so bad because they said, you know what? We don't even think about that kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, I know you don't, but I can't afford not to.
Right. That's, I mean, the definition of white privilege. So let's, let's go back to what you guys are talking about. When you say that they were profiling, you know, black people and, and making assumptions. Yes, they were doing that in the 18th, the 18th century, the whether the 19th century, and early 20th century, because we still, and I don't know, maybe I'm just past my time. Maybe people don't think like that anymore, but I think there's a lot of black people that still have that, have that notion of taking the, that, that extra step of precaution psychologically to make sure, just just in case. Now, if nothing ever happens, great. But on the off chance that it does, you have the receipt saying that you did pay for the gas. You follow what I'm saying? I think that one of the, the more crazy things to think about, Dr. Johnson, is I think we talked about without sanctuary in uh, that race and slavery course, which was, I mean, I think everyone knows that lynching is terrible but one of the the weirdest and most horrifying parts of that is that you know my my grandpa was six and in iowa and people in indiana felt comfortable showing up in their sunday best and getting photographed at a lynching i mean that's not that's not that long ago right that like something that barbaric people felt comfortable getting a picture with their kids and their wife with a, a dead guy just hanging there. And let's let's be very specific about this, John. First off, Ryan, Tim, I, I don't know if you guys have seen that book, Without Sanctuary. It first first off, it's a book that I recommend everybody have in their library, but it, it is not a book to be viewed with the faint, for the faint of heart. As John will tell you, it is, a, it is a book filled with nothing but lynching photos from roughly 1868 until 1968, 1970. And they don't, they don't hold nothing back. But the one, I think, John, the class that you were in for Slavery and Race, we focus upon the lynching in Marion, Indiana in 1931. A. Smith and Tommy Ship are hanging from that that, that tree. And, and here's, now, to add further insult to the irony, A. Smith and Tommy Ship are hanging from a tree that's just outside the courthouse, the house of justice, right? So here's two men who have been hanged by a vigilante mob. And what John's talking about, you guys, is these folk have taken a picture They've gathered together like they're taking a, a, a picture for a family reunion. There's old, there's young, there's male, there's female. So, so much for the whole gender part about, you know, women being more kind and friendly. That's out the window. It, it, so much for, you know, the older people having more wisdom or young, younger people being more hot-headed. There's all group of folk there. The only common denominator is that they're all white. And they're all there. And here's the thing, as John will tell you, the thing that strikes me about that picture all the time is that you got two black bodies hanging from a tree, and below them, people have gathered together to take a picture like they're part of a family reunion, and each and every last one of them is looking straight into the eye of the camera. They're smiling. One person's pointing up at the bodies as in, make sure you see me, and there's, not a, there's, there's nothing on their faces that indicates that they're worried, concerned, or even bothered by the fact that someone from law enforcement will come and ask them about what they were doing there, did they do it, they know that they can literally murder two people and take a picture and look into the eye of the camera and know that nothing is going to happen to them. No reprisal, no impunity, no questioning, no interrogation, no arrest, no jail time, nothing. They know that they can literally kill black people and get away with it. And, and again, like that's one not that long ago, again, like all three of our, of our of the hosts, I mean, our grandparents were alive, I, I believe, in the early 30s, which is mind-boggling to think about. And then two, not not a deep South state, right? Like that's not some random corner of Mississippi burning. That's not that far away from Hope College. In in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, Indiana was the state in all other states. 
they'll say what when Hawaii doesn't join the union until later than that. But of the lower 48, Indiana had the highest concentration of Ku Klux Klansmen than Mississippi, more than Mississippi, more than Louisiana, more than Alabama, more than Georgia, more than Florida, more than Virginia, more than any other state, Indiana and Marion, Marion Indiana. And what, what John is talking about is that sure, it's been from our perspective in the 21st century, it was a long time ago, 1931. Okay, you know, in a few more years, it'll be 100 years. But John's absolutely correct. 100 years, as far as the historians are concerned, that's nothing. And what you what you have to think about is this. And this is the thing that kind of the, the, the thing that kind of caught my attention relative to 1-6-2021. I'm sitting here looking at these mobs storming the U.S. Capitol, the U.S. Congress, the house the house built by slaves, and I had people calling me and texting me all day long, saying things like, "Can you imagine, Fred? Can you imagine what 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 this would have looked like if this were a mob of black people doing this?" And I said, "Yes, I can imagine. Why can't you imagine it?" Yeah, that was that was a common sentiment, and I think President Biden even made that comment as well, saying that if this was the Black Lives Matter protests that we saw this summer, there would be a vastly different response than what we saw on January 6th. My brother got arrested in Dallas for being by the side of a highway. And, and you know, eventually like the judge called the, the cops and said, I'm not going to listen to 400 different cases about this, let them all go. But like, yeah, I mean, it, it's mind boggling that there wasn't more force used. But I, in the interest of time, Dr. Johnson, I think this is really good context. One of my questions, and I think the thing that comes up a lot that I'm really interested in is the difference between the experience of African-Americans and other minority groups. So I hear a lot about the Irish slave myth is a persistent one. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment against Italians and Irish and Slavic groups. But what are your thoughts on the differences between the Black experience and other minority groups? Let me say this first up, John, and I don't I don't get into the politics of suffering, but sometimes people like to get bogged down like, you know, the Japanese who were in turn suffered more than the Native Americans or the Native Americans suffered more than black folks. From, from my perspective, the United States are the country that established itself with the aspirational values of we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. If there's any place on earth where this is not supposed to happen, should not have happened, it should have been here. So it doesn't matter to me whether it should have been black people enslaved, Irish Catholics who were harassed and, you know, and, and, and bludgeoned and beat up and marginalized or Italian Catholics or German, you know, Germans who, you know, immigrated after World War One. None of it should have happened. This should be America should be the haven where any place, any but any group of people on Earth should come here and be folded into the larger Democratic Republican ideals set down by the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Now, let me be there's a caveat. That's the aspirational language of the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that says, we the people. James Madison said, if men were angels, there would be no need for government. Clearly, men are not angels, so there's a need for government. The African-American experience, as far as, you know, who suffered most, A, none of it should have happened. But if you're looking for a distinction about how the African-American experience has been different, as I said in my response to you on the email, I think it comes down to this one fundamental point. It's on the basis of skin color. Black people have not been able to eventually, over a generation or two, blend into the whiteness as America defines whiteness. Italians eventually did. The Irish eventually did. The Poles eventually did. 
some people from different parts of Southern Europe, they eventually did. They all eventually did over time. But black people, because of the singular distinction of skin color, never were able to join that club. Not that they would have wanted to, because there's nothing wrong with being who you are. But if, in fact, you were looking to assimilate, there was always the bridge that would not be crossed. Because at least when I was growing up, I'll, I'll share with you all this. When I was growing up, I heard this over and over and over again. If you're white, you're all right. If you're yellow, you're mellow. If you're brown, stick around. But if you're black, get back. That was the ethos that was in force as I grew up in the 1970s, early 80s. You follow me? Now, has that changed any? Uh, it's, it's probably not as prominent as it used to be. It certainly is not as widely spoken openly as it, as it once was. But I'm not so sure that based on what we've seen in recent history, meaning the like from 2016 or 2015 to now, the one thing that I have to say, I mean, there are very few things that I, that I would say that I am grateful to the previous administration for, but they have at least, what they have done is they have at least shown, is that that guy showed us that everything that people have been talking about for years and years and years about the rising threat, the reality of, it can't be denied now unless you just choose to willfully deny what's in front of you. There's something in uh, the Windsor War, rather, Herman Wook, a Jewish writer, who wrote a couple of novels entitled The Windsor War and War Remembrance. He talked about something called The Will, to not believe. And basically, when Herman Wu was talking about this, it's in, in, it's, it's, it's in official context, but what he was saying is that it is the, the ability of human beings to see something before their very eyes and then make the, and make the psychological choice to not believe the thing that they're seeing because it just defies the logic and the reasoning of that they're capable of, of comprehending, so they choose to just believe a different alternative. Now, unless you're in that category and choosing not to believe what's been happening for the last four or five years, then okay. But if you are going to believe what's happening for the four or five years, we've had this building problem, which is why, like I told you all earlier in our conversation, when people were calling me saying like, can you believe this is going on? Yes, I can believe it's going on. My problem is why couldn't you believe it? Black people have been the historical canary in the coal mine. If you know anything about coal mines, oftentimes miners would take a canary into a coal mine because if there was a methane leak, or anything going on in the coal mine, the canary, being a small, delicate bird, would die first. That was the that was the signal for the coal miners to get the heck out of the mine. If they if they ignored it, well, then too bad for them. But black folks have been dying. We've been dying over and over and over again. We've been the canary in the coal mine, trying to tell people this could happen. There's a problem here. There's a methane leak. The mine's about to explode. It's about to is about to collapse. And then they storm the capital. Then all of a sudden, people said, "Well, we have a problem." Well, no kidding. We, we, we've been saying that. I think one of the, the things that trips people up about the idea of systemic racism is I think that they don't quite understand the gravity of the history. And what I mean by that is, again, going back to the, you know, the educational system, a lot of the times it's slavery was bad. We had the Civil War. We solved that. Maybe we'll talk about lynching. Maybe we'll talk briefly about the Tuskegee Airmen or Booker T. Washington or George Washington Carver, and then we'll get to Dr. King and MLK and Malcolm X and racism is solved. And I, I think that we all know the basic gist of we had slavery, we had a civil war, slavery's over, and then we had a civil rights movement. Think of the, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but think of the irony of that. The Tuskegee Airmen would never have existed had it not been for the fact that we had a segregated military fighting against the Germans in World War II. I mean, we're in World War II fighting against the most willfully bigoted virulently racist regime in all of human history, 
and we go fight them with what? A segregated, a segregated military? You got black pilots, black fighter pilots who are escorting B-17 bombers filled with white pilots. The Tuskegee Airmen were not allowed to learn how to fly four-engine B-17s because the belief was they did not want them to have the skill of flying heavy bombers so that after the war, if in fact black pilots decided they want to become commercial airline pilots, they didn't want them to have, they didn't want them to be checked out on those kind of aircraft. And well, one, the, the irony of the Nuremberg laws being directly influenced by Jim Crow laws. That's a terrifying thought to think of that, you know, Nazism is basically just Jim Crow subjected to extreme external pressures and the sense of loss. The Nazi, the Nazis were not at all bashful about saying that their laws against the Jews and their concentration camps and so much of what they did was based on what they got from American eugenics in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, that's an alarming part. I actually, we, we talked briefly in our Civil War episode about the Battle of the Crater, and we found a, fi- a primary source from a Richmond paper at the time where these black veterans are getting led into Richmond and an editorial is, I think, guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but the direct quote was something like, and the editorial is being written as if to the, the Confederate commander, sip some brandy and continue doing the, the work that God has laid out for you until every Negro is slaughtered. And, and I remember uh, I watched the end scene of Glory uh, a couple of weeks after and like that movie, which is about the 54th Massachusetts and that the combat scenes hit a little differently thinking like, oh no, it wasn't just they're fighting. They're fighting in a war where the policy at the time and prevailing sentiment at the time is every black person bearing arms needs to be executed afterwards. That's right. The, the Confederate policy at the time was that a black man with a weapon in his hand was basically to be interpreted as part of a slave rebellion. And the only, the only punishment that the South recognized for that was execution. So if you were a black man in a, in a Union uniform fighting for the North, you were, you, you were part of a slave insurrection. Just uh, if you looked at the scene in Glory, John, at the very end, you know, when they buried Colonel Shaw with his men, I think I, think I told you all in class that what, here's what the Southerners didn't realize, right? Here's the irony. They buried a white man with his black soldiers. And so such was the racism of the South at the time that they had separate graves. And this will be a practice that goes into 20th century, you know, white cemeteries, black cemeteries. But by burying Colonel Robert Gould Shaw with his men, they, they actually advanced civil rights in a weird kind of, you know, very morbid kind of way by putting this white man in the grave with his soldiers. And when his parents asked, wrote to Richmond, the Confederate government asking for his body back, Richmond responded by saying, he's been buried with his niggers. They meant it for an insult, but Shaw's parents took it as the greatest compliment that could have been given to their sons because that's exactly the way he wanted, he would have wanted to have ended his life with the men that he saw as human beings and fellow soldiers, not niggers, but fellow soldiers. And so, Ironically enough, Richmond's attempt to insult his the, the legacy of Colonel Shaw and try and wound his parents, what that did was that just made them all the more determined to do the right thing as far as when, when it came to race relations and equality and so on. And, and also the first, retroactively the first Black American to win a Medal of Honor is from that engagement. I, I think one of the things, going back to the original question here, which was the issue of how is the Black experience different from other minority groups. I think people just don't quite understand maybe the breadth of all the history behind it, right? Like, I I think it goes back to this idea of 
we had a civil war, then we had a civil rights movement, everything is fine. And, and we skirt over all this stuff in the interim, like the destruction of Black Wall Street in, oh, keep me honest on the year, I want to say it's 1921, 22. 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, yeah. They called it the Greenwood District. This idea that, you know, you have this this thriving community that is mostly black and is doing a, a lot of a lot of great things and there's some accumulation of wealth and that in the course of you know a couple of horrendous race riots and massacres from the white community that can all just be destroyed. Now you know what? The the, the thing the thing that really always kind of just makes me stand back in bewilderment is when people talk about, you know, black black people rioting and so forth. They tend to overlook the 1866 riot in Memphis, immediately after the Civil War. There's another one in New Orleans after the Civil War. That pe- people tend to overlook the 19, the the riot in East St. Louis in 1917, the Chicago riots in 1919, the mobs that went through Watts in 1966. All these riots that Black people get tagged with, you know, with starting and just being, you know, Black people out of control usually came around, came about as a result of decades and decades and decades and decades of white harassment, you know, the failure of the police to protect communities and so forth. And finally, you know, people get fed up with stuff and they take matters into their own hands. You know, and there's, if you do a study of, if you do a study of ghettos, whether it be Jewish ghettos, Polish ghettos, you know, like in Hamtramck, Detroit, you know, just outside of Detroit in the early 20th century, any group of people, Irish Catholics, any group of people, that subjected to that kind of uh, treatment is going to eventually find a point and it won't be something obvious. It'll be some, some small thing that just says to them, you know what? Enough is enough is enough. So if you add to all that, John, the, the Greenwood district in 1929 and 1913, there's Rosewood, Florida, which is just completely removed off the map. The thing about Tulsa, Oklahoma is that you have a thriving, not just a black community, which is thriving, but rather surviving, but they are thriving. Here it is. It's the early 20th century. Jim Crow is not a figment of the imagination. It's the law. It's the reality. It's the cultural norm. And black people in, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, have somehow found a way of not just thri- of surviving in that environment. They're getting wealthy. They're doing well. In fact, fr- from their perspective, it's better to have segregation because any white interference is going to involve there is going to it's going to diminish the amount of money that they're making. They have their own theaters, businesses, schoolhouses, churches. I mean, everything is working just like the segregationists say they want it to work, separate and apart. The only mistake they made was that they were they, they were doing better economically than their white counterparts. There was supposed to be a bunch of shuffling, mumble-mouthing morons who white people could look down and have their preferred image of black people being unintelligent, poor, slovenly you know, and, and, and needing all the time, but they weren't doing that. So what they did was a incident. I forgot what actually happened. It was a, a kid that got on an elevator with a young white woman and somehow in the elevator ride between where it started and it ended, he apparently, so, so the word went, tried to make a move on her. That was the catalyst, the reason, the, the cause that gave that entire community that had been just building up and building up with all this envy and resentment to move into to move into Greenwood and listen closely to burn, pillage, and bomb from the air. You're talking about a community bombed from the air in the United States to reduce people to a level of poverty that more fit the preferred image that black people are supposed to have. So educated, business owning, 
wealthy black people defied the preferred stereotype, which was poor, scraping by, uneducated, mumble-mouthing black people, which is what the white people in Tulsa preferred to see. These black folk proved them, beat them at their own game, and they paid for it by being reduced by violence to the preferred image. What are you supposed to do when you're already segregated and you find a way of saying, okay, that's your game, we're going to play it, and we'll beat you at it, and we'll, be, we'll beat you at it on our turf. But then they say, well, that's not good enough either. It reminds me of Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce Indians. Chief Joseph, Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce were trying to get out of the United States. The Americans after 1876, Battle of Big, Big, Little Bighorn, were moving fast to put Native Americans on reservations. Chief Joseph is, is moving through, through the Pacific Northwest to get into Canada. He actually crossed the border to get into Canada. The U.S. Army went after him, captured his people, and brought them back to America. All you can say is, what's wrong with these people? They didn't want them here. They've gone to Canada. They know you don't get your problem. You're going to bring them back and say that, okay, we're going to bring you back to the country where we don't want you and put you on a reservation? Bring you back just to oppress you, pretty much. I, I think one of the other, like, weird things, and, and like, again, like, I, I would say, like, when it comes to American history, I, I know more than most people, but I'm just finding out more and more every day about some really, pardon my French, some random fucked up incident in American history. Like, I mentioned this to you, Dr. Johnson, uh, my, my wife and I live in Austin, Texas right now. Uh, when we were down here, I forget how I found out about this, but I think it was one of the newspapers shared something on social media about uh, a race riot in 1910 in East Texas in some random little town where 50 to, 50 to 100 uh, black people were murdered in Slocum over the course of uh, like two to three days. And again, like I know quite a bit about American history and I'm just, there's all these little pockets of extreme violence that just, again, were not that long ago. What I want you to look into, Jonathan, is the Brownsville incident that happened in the early 20th century with a bunch of black soldiers who were harassed and they decided, you know, these are, these are black soldiers, these are military men, they, they are, these are men of pride, they've been trained, these are American soldiers, and they're like, you know what, we're not going to put up with this. These guys have been trained in the professional arms, and they decide, we're fighting for this country, we're not going to let a bunch, of, a bunch of yokels do this to us, and we're fighting for this flag too. But you know what, it didn't turn out too well for them. I think that was during the administration of Theodore Roosevelt, who all things considered, as far as 20th, early 20th century presidents go, he wasn't great, but he was certainly a lot better than Woodrow Wilson, who was just an out-and-out bigot. I, I feel like this came up when I did some research with Dr. Petit. Was this, this is a, I thought this was during World War One. Would have been between Spanish-American and, yeah, about a decade before oh, World yeah, War I. yeah, 1906, according to Wikipedia. I'm so thrown off, real quick. I mean, you talk about these events, and they seem just as formative to American history as the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre during Revolutionary Times if not more impactful on today's society than those events were. We never learned them. Yeah, this is the first I'm hearing of them, of Brownsville and the um, uh, the, the Green Town, is that, or Green Street? The Greenwood District and Tulsa, Oklahoma. They've done a lot, a lot of great work digitizing the, the history of what happened there. And, and, and here's the thing, you guys, for decades, this happened, this happened in 1921, and it was only until the early 20th, 21st century 80 years later, nearly 100 years later, that this began even gracing the lips of, of many Americans. It was a secret that Oklahoma and Tulsa, Oklahoma kept under a lid for nearly 100 years. So, you know, when people find black folk protesting today, 
Black Lives Matter and all this other kind of stuff, whatever, you know, whatever they're talking about, you know, you're talking about communities that have lived with these wounds and these legacies for, for year after year after year. You know, I get it when my white colleagues and students go like, I don't understand what's going on. What are they mad about? They don't understand because they don't know. You can't know what you don't know. There's a whole part of American history that's kind of been pushed down and just kind of swept under the rug because of the fact that it just makes America look less great than what we want it to look. Where in actuality, if we actually recognized what happened in our past, some of our dirty laundry, and we said, yeah, that part of us, like that sucked in the past and we need to do something to make ourselves better than we were then. That would take great strides forward if we were to do that. But, but the first step is recognition. That's that's exactly right. You can't, you know, it's like, you know, the, the person that goes in to see their doctor and says, I've been feeling bad. And the doctor says, well, you got cancer. We're like, well, when did that happen? I don't know, about six months ago. The, the point is, just because you don't know doesn't mean you don't have it. We have had a cancer. It's called racism. And just because most people either don't know or choose to deny it doesn't mean it's not there. If you are interested in living a, a good, strong life, then you do what's required to get rid of the cancer, either through surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy. But if you don't, it's going to metastasize and probably kill you. It's been metastasizing. I think one of the, in my own personal development, one of the, the key moments for me going into that, that race and slavery course was I had this background knowledge of all the messed up stuff that had happened in U.S. history, but I didn't know anything about the New Deal and the GI Bill and all of these incidents. And those were, those federal policies in the 30s and 40s and 50s are kind of the moment that made me realize like, oh, my, my family is middle class today because of things that happened after World War II. Can you maybe elaborate on some of those? When Affirmative Action Was White was uh, a pretty inspiring book for me. Well, if you think about it, John, you know, World War II, let's, let's just start from December 7, 1941, okay? Up until December 7, 1941, America was still operating on, a, on an early 20th century economy and industrial model. World War II obliterated all that because, not because it was somebody's good idea, but because it had to. We almost, and this is not an exaggeration to say, overnight had to ramp up industrially and so ramping up industrially meant that we had to innovate technologically with different, with different manufacturing methods, different engineering methods, different supply chain methods. All, everything had to change. And so the changes in supply chain, manufacturing, industrialization, and producing all that wartime equipment required different skills, requiring different educational models, different educational abilities, and cognition strengths, and critical thinking, all these things to meet the immediate crisis of World War I. So what happened then was that from 1941 to 1945, the economy and the basis upon which that economy was established changed because of World War II. It met, the, it met and defeated the immediate crisis, which was the Japanese militarists, the Nazi uh, bigots, and the Italian fascists. But after World War II, the people that learned all that stuff, that became the new norm for the post-war economy. And the U.S. government figured out that soldiers coming back from Europe in the Pacific and European theater would need educations to be able to compete in that new economy. The educations that would allow them to get jobs, that would allow them to purchase homes, that would allow them to establish, you know, some type of a fiscal foundation for themselves. In that post-war period, the GI Bill that was supposed to provide all those benefits for getting a home, getting a school loan, 
for getting education, African-American soldiers were denied that routinely because of a block of Southern Democratic senators. And you guys have to understand, the Democratic Party from 1945 to 1964 was a totally different animal than the one it is today. It is not the party of the big tent that wants black folks and, you know, Korean Americans and Asian Americans and all these other folk in it. They were strictly the, part, the party of Southern segregationists and Southern bigots. And so they, they formed a block in the Senate and every piece of legislation that might have been generated to try and establish equity was voted down by these Southern senators from, from what they call the Old South or Dixie. They call themselves Dixiecrats, not Democrats, but Dixiecrats. So African-American soldiers and veterans were routinely denied access to funds for the GI Bill, which would have led them get an education or given them, given them a home loan to buy a house. And for most Americans, owning a home is the first step in developing what it becomes generational wealth. And not having that available to them, that another generation went by where educationally they were put behind it again. As far as home ownership was, was concerned, they lay behind there. So African-American wealth building, one generation to the next, was missed again. Educational opportunities were missed again. Listen, I'll tell you guys something. I am the first person in my family. I have what? I have five sisters. I'm the first person in my family to graduate with a college degree. I'm the first person in my family to get an advanced degree. Now, this is the 21st century. And this is just happening in my family. I'm 62 years old. And again, like, I think that when we talk about Black history, and I mean, we're in Black History Month now, and not saying that we shouldn't focus on slavery and the Civil War and... But John, it all carries over. It all carries over. Yeah, it's all part of... Because like we were talking about, you know, we were talking about how you know, John and my and Tim's grandparents were alive, you know, when lynchings were still around. It's very likely that many people are alive today that were had their pictures taken during those lynchings. Well, if you go back to during that lynchings time period, it's very likely that many of those people were part of like very segregationalist, if not still slave states, kind of during their point in time. It's recent history. It's not so far away as some people would like to think. And you know what, Ryan? You know, J John will tell you from the way, J John will verify this for me, because you know, he was in that slavery and race class, and he can tell you how I conducted that class. My, my objective in that class was not to make my white students feel guilty right, or like they were responsible for any of this kind of stuff. My objective was I told I tell students on the first day of class, my white students and my students of color, there are not very many students of color in that class, but I tell my white students on the very first day of class, if you're bringing guilt or anxiety in here, I need you to park that at the door. And for students of color, if you're bringing uh, anger and frustration, I need you to park that at the door. The only person in that class, in that slavery and race class, that has any right to feel angry or frustrated about anything is me. I'm the one that was nearly beat to death by cops. And I'm, and I'm past that because here's my, here's my philosophy. Guilt and frustration, anger and frustration gets in the way of me doing my job as an historian. If you didn't own slaves, then don't, then don't be responsible for owning slaves. But what I need is for people to come there with an open mind and open heart so we can get to these facts and not feel guilty about them. Because these are the facts that for John, you know, are well known now for maybe for some of you all are revelations. But it's this information that helps to explain how we got into this fix. My objective is to, is to get this information out there so we can talk about this, be informed, so that people can know what they don't know. And once we, and know what, and once we know what we don't know, my hope as an educator 
as someone who's dedicated to the life of the mind, who believes in the ability of critical thinking to resolve things, my hope is that people of integrity, people that won't go around making stuff up like conspiracy theories, if we had the facts before us, and if we come at this honestly, we can sit down and think our way to a solution because this, this can be solved because it's the United States of America. I think that's what I'm always trying to focus on is how do we solve this in today's context, right? If racism is, it's not just overt, but it's part of the system, right? It's the leftovers of redlining and, um, of course, mass incarceration and uh, a horrible funding of an education system that's based on property values. You know, we can solve, of course, overt racism by not raising racists. Uh, but, you know, how do we form a society that's anti-racist, right? What are the tools we can do to undo so much of this history? Well, Tim, just thinking what you just said, you, know, you mentioned redlining, you talked about you know funding relative to zip codes and so forth. If we know that those have been the typical markers or reference points or you know the statistical you know gradations where racism or inequities exist, then a guy like you that just rattled off those, those facts, you know where to begin uh, applying your knowledge. It's when we're kind of like, you know, walking around with our, you know, with our, with our arms stuck out, you know, hands in the dark, blindfolded, saying like, we know it's out there, there's a problem, but I don't know where to attack. You know two things to attack. Redlining. Redlining comes about as a result of the 1933 legislation passed as a result of the Homeowners Loan Corporation, a federal program that was initially designed to look at distressed properties in urban areas that real estate companies and then eventually banks adopted to target communities of color and poor whites. Now, the original intent may have been benign, but the way it's been used since then has been used as a point of exclusion. If you know that and you're in finance, you can help to dismantle all that. If you're an educator and you know what's been happening with regard to educational funding, you can attack all that. But if you don't know, Martin Luther King Jr. said that one of the most dangerous things to justice is sincere ignorance or conscientious stupidity. Now, if you're not being sincerely ignorant or conscientiously stupid, then you have some knowledge with which to work with. And then the only question then is, what are you going to do about it? Because I tell people, that John will also tell you this, in the slavery and race class, I said, listen, we've been at this for 400 years. There are people a lot more knowledgeable than me and a lot more courage than I have that have been working on this. They literally either died or were assassinated trying to fix this thing. It's not going to be done overnight. And just, to, I mean, honestly, just as I thought, that the biggest bigot in the world being voted out of office, we won't hear from him, him anymore. Now we have one named Marjorie Taylor Greene and other ones, you know, in Charlottesville. So there's a whole new, a whole new generation of them running up to the front of the line to take their place. It's going to be a while, guys. This is a long-term project, and what white people need to understand is that this is not going to be done overnight. It's not going to be done easily because there's all there, there, there are too many people out there that see that there are benefits to be gained. I'm talking about black and white people. Benefits to be gained from appealing to the lowest common denominator of human proclivity and human behavior, which is to divide and put people at odds with each other, then to bring them together to unite in the common cause. So at this point in my life, I'm like Malcolm X. I don't care if you're white or black or something in between. If you are for justice and equity and fairness, you are an ally of mine. If you happen to be white, then we can be friends. But if you're black and you happen to be working for injustice, or dividing people, then we have a problem. Am I clear? Crystal. 
I, I think that we're starting to tip the scales too. Like we've seen kind of throughout history, there's there's more white people, there's more people of color speaking up because there's there's a climate that's allowing it. And I think that having this kind of anti-racist movement and part of the Black Lives Matter movement as well, there's more strength in the number of voices speaking out against all the racism that's occurring. I think that that's a huge step forward. And yes, we still have bigots like Marjorie Taylor Greene and other elected officials, but they are definitely shrinking and their beliefs and the bullshit that they espouse is becoming you know, more on the fringe and people are starting to recognize that for what it is. Well, let me tell you something. I think that's why, you know, earlier when you guys said that you just kind of got together randomly to do this podcast, you know, I can't think, I mean, I, I believe in a, my belief system tells me that there's, there are no accidents under God's sky. And the fact that you three guys have gotten together to do this podcast, it could not be any more better time, you know, and knowing that John is on here, on here and Tim and Ryan, you guys strike me as three, three, some very talented individuals to attack this subject. And it's just a, it's a, it's the right moment at the right time for the right message for the right purpose. Congratulations. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. That It truly means a lot. And we're so thankful to have you as, as our first guest too. Well, that was an incredibly insightful and engaging conversation, but I think there's so much more that can be talked about for hours from that. Uh, but we covered so much ground in such a little amount of time. Right. I, I think that one of the key things about this time period in history is that I think a lot of people think of racism as this thing that we solved in the 60s rather than policies that were undertaken in the 30s, 40s, and 50s have an impact today. So for me personally, I think about like my grandfather was in World War II. He was injured in Germany in February of 1945, and he came back and used the GI Bill to go to med school. And that was something that a lot of Black veterans didn't get. And a lot of people around that time period who were white had the opportunity to buy homes that were subsidized by the federal government when at the same time, Black Americans didn't get that opportunity because of government policy. So I think, I think that like, that's one of the key things people need to understand about systemic racism, right? Like it's, it's not just that Black people are held back by it. It's that policies that were undertaken by the federal government in particularly the 30s to the 50s made the white middle class today. And that's one of the reasons why there's such a big wealth gap today. That's a wrap for this episode of Misinformation. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MissedInfoPod. If you have any questions or want to share your opinions on systemic racism, shoot us an email at MissedInfoPod at gmail.com. Again, that's MissedInfoPod at gmail.com, as well as MissedInfoPod on Instagram and Twitter, making it easy for you guys. Special thanks to our producer, John Schoenheider, for working his audio magic to make John, Tim, and Dr. Johnson and myself sound as good as possible. Keep an eye out for new episodes every Monday. Thanks, everybody.